UK Motor Talk. The Total Elf HTX, Mike Hawthorne, Grand Prix of Farnham. Hello, we are today at the Mike Hawthorne Grand Prix de Farnham 2018 and we have brave cold winds, a lot of rain. I mean, there's been a lot of rain. Yeah, horrific conditions on the way up here, but it's uh, it's lovely to see so many classic cars are being brought out despite the weather and despite the fact that most of them don't have a roof or any form of roof whatsoever. And, and that sort of brings us to the point, doesn't it, really? I mean, there are cars here which are pure racing cars or road legal racing cars because, uh, as we've said before, you know, we... We absolutely love the fact that these cars still have number plates on them. But there are a number of cars here that aren't, and a number that are either drop heads, convertibles, or are being driven up with a torno cover on, or just being driven up by some very brave people that are soaking wet now. There's a bit of everything here, though, isn't there, really? I'm standing by an Austin A30, which uh, we saw at Goodwood Revival. Um, it's got some famous names on the side there. We've got uh, Glenn Mason, Rob Huff, and, of course, Tiff Nadell. I mean, it's, it's a cool-looking thing, and these have seen some, some serious interest in recent years because they're now at an age where they, they qualify for these historic events, and they're actually still reasonable money. Uh, yeah, and this uh, this one actually is f- uh, for sale. Not uh, not quite sure how much he's asking for it, but it looks like it would be a, a lovely thing to buy and run. And uh, it's a lovely mix of uh, of classic and obviously most of the original bits and pieces remain. But when you look inside it, you've got a modern bucket seat and harnesses and a roll cage, etc. And uh, as we saw at Revival, the uh, the roll cage very very important these days. And uh, and I think certainly saved one guy when he had a, a rather nasty rollover accident. Yeah, Cortina, wasn't it? That was, that was incredible several yeah. several flips over sort of barrel roll style you can see that every, every bit of it that wasn't roll cage was uh, was pretty much absolutely destroyed but he he got out not really a scratch on him and, and walked away yeah which I mean, was lovely to see quite literally a couple of scratches as it goes i mean there's there's a number of cars here and we've got some some real variety so i'm stood here looking at porsche speedster next to a willie's jeep next to a morgan next to a jag we've got an xk stood next to us here i can see a aston martin db4 gt i can see a toyota yaris bizarrely um but i can see a number of other cars as well that are here so from your austin atlantic um, which we will speak about a little bit more later in the program a ford fusion uh yep so that's it that that well-known and well-reputed classic we've got ferraris we've got the thin wall special we've got a bit of everything here so we're gonna have a wander around now jim and i and graham we're gonna have a bit of a chat about things that we can see and things that interest us well if you're going to come to an event like this you might as well talk to the man who's expert in this field doug nye noted motorsport author historian researcher and general expert on everything to do with motorsport but you go back a very, very long way, your association with Mike Hawthorne. Well, yes, I grew up in Guildford, and of course he was, um, you know, from Farnham, just 12 miles away, and he was our local racing hero. I followed his career avidly when I was a small child, from the age of about, <laughs> about seven or eight, and I was 13 when we heard on the radio that um, there'd been a bad crash up on the... A3, Guildford Bypass, and I cycled up there because we lived quite close to it to see what was happening, and they were just craning a folded-in-half Jaguar saloon onto a trailer to take it away. And um, that evening we learned that it was Mike Hawthorne. That sort of stuck with me ever since. It was, it was the loss of a real hero. I've seen the photos uh, that were taken at the scene of the crash, 
and I, I don't think I've ever seen, apart from Sterling's big accident, I don't think I've ever seen a car so badly damaged. Well, he hit a tree broadside going rather quickly, and probably too quickly for the legal speed limit, but never mind. And um, it was unsurvivable, really. Rob Walker, uh, Sterling Moss's entrant, was chasing him in a Mercedes at the time, uh, which probably explains the uh, velocity that they were both achieving. And um, Rob got to the car and at first couldn't find Mike at all, and then found him on the back seat. And as he looked at him, Mike died. Simple as that. Tragic end to uh, such a successful career, brief career, but uh, the world champion, the reigning world champion. It was a brief career. Mike became the first Briton to win the Formula One Drivers' World Championship, and he won it by one point from Sterling Moss. And he was actually assisted in securing that extra one point by Sterling himself because in, it was decided in the Moroccan Grand Prix right at the end of 1958, 60 years ago. Uh, but in the Portuguese Grand Prix that preceded it, the organisers wanted to disqualify Mike because at the end of the race, he'd slithered up a, an escape road with no brakes on the Ferrari, which was a common failing. And he'd, uh, he was reported for having proceeded in the direction opposite to the race. And Sterling went into bat for him with the stewards and said, no, he wasn't proceeding in the opposite direction to the race because he wasn't on the race circuit. He was actually on the pavement at the time. And the stewards accepted Sterling's plea on his deadly rival's behalf. And that gave Mike one extra world championship point because he set fastest lap in that race. And in those days, fastest lap scored one point. Mm. So when they got to the end of the season, and Sterling won the last race and set fastest lap and everything else. Mike finished second and still won by that one point. If, if it hadn't been for Sterling, he wouldn't have had that one point from the Portuguese Grand Prix. That's, a, that's an extraordinary story, isn't it? Mm. Thank you, Doug. Much appreciated. Okay. Thanks for Pleasure. that. We are stood in the paddock, and a car that's getting a lot of attention is an Austin Atlantic. Now, this has come in. There's lots of some well, lots of very nicely prepared cars, lots of polish and everything else. But more impressively, I think, is a car that's uh, that's wearing its its scars with pride, and it has real patina, and I absolutely love it. But tell me a bit more about it. Well, it's uh, a 1951. Austin Atlantic as you said earlier um, we have had the car nearly two years I bought it after seeing it on Car and Classic in 2016 advertised very simply with a very poor picture saying that it needed a lot of work come and have a look make an offer so I went to have a look and it, because it was in Merton Park in South Wimbledon it was actually on the way to our son uh, who lives in Upper Norwood, so I thought, well, we'll call in out of curiosity. Spoke to the gentleman that owned it, and he said that it had stood in his garage for over 40 years, so I thought the worst of it, really. I thought I'd call in and see what condition it might be in, bearing in mind that in that time, of course, it could have been rusted away to a, a complete wreck, and uh, it was more solid than I expected, although it's very tired and worn out. It's surprisingly solid. When I poked around underneath, all the usual rust spots were um, more solid than, than I expected. I considered it and made an offer. Several weeks later, the guy came back and accepted it. So in a few weeks' time, got a low loader to collect it. 
pull it out of the garage. It was very, very uh, poor in respect that the tyres were all flat, two wheels were locked solid. When I got it home, I started doing some work to it. And uh, I suppose collectively, you know, you leave it for some months over winter because it's too cold and wet to work on it. I, I spent about nine months recommissioning it and uh, everything needed doing. The engine was seized solid, the pistons were stuck, the top end had completely rusted out thanks to water in the oil and um, head gasket failure back in 1973, made it uh, go into the garage and, and didn't come out. So, so many projects are lost to the, the one day, the good intentions and everything else. And we should point out that the, that the car uh, it is a, a very solid car. It's, I think the paint, where the paint, uh, the paint started to flake, that's, um, that, that makes it look the way it is. But it, it does look like it's been loved and used. And I don't think you could ever recreate this again. But there's a story behind the paint as well, isn't there? Yes, yes. The gentleman that uh, bought the car. And in fact, he, he got it from his father in 1960. His father bought it in 1956 from a dealer in Nine Elms in London and drove it around and then gave it to his son. So his son carried on and drove it from 1960 until December of 73. And he was his every, everyday driver. He used to go up to Newcastle in it, Bradford, um, because he worked for Nightlight Sign Company in London. And he was actually using this car as his company car, if you like, and drive up to uh, the north of England repa repairing lights over motorway gantries. But eventually the engine gave trouble and uh, it got parked up. And speaking of lights, it's quite an unusual looking car, this, because it has a third light in the centre. Uh, and I guess that's uh, an American influence, really, over, over the car that sort of makes it, shapes it the way it is. Well, it, in a way, I mean, the thing was, at the time, the, the country was broke. They were trying to make or earn foreign money. And US dollar was a good thing to, to bring into the country at the time, after the war, and we're trying to repair the country after the war. The shortage of supply of materials was always a problem and um, they basically thought that if they designed a car that would appeal to the Americans, the American idea of a, a shape of car, they thought they could sell more of them. The reality was that um, it wasn't like that. The, the Americans bought English cars because they were English and they looked English, you know? Mm. And if you try and make a, an American car that appealed to the American market, it wasn't big enough. It didn't have six cylinders. It's only a four-cylinder engine. Um, it was the same price as a Pontiac, and the Pontiac had a bigger boot and uh, a six-cylinder engine, so they, they just didn't sell. They sold about 200 in the US and then gave up. Mm. And, and you, you told us a little bit earlier that there's... Um there's uh, some interesting stats about the car. About I mean, you can see that it would work quite well as a, as a convertible. This is a, a sort of coupe, I guess, yes, really, isn't it? A coupe yes, back. Yes. Um, but there's there's some interesting some interesting stories there too. Well, the, the the car was designed in 1948 by Dick Bursey, who was a designer working for Austin at Longbridge, and Leonard Lord was the MD at the time of the company. And Dick worked with Leonard to actually. Uh, design a car that would appeal what they thought would appeal to the Americans so they took styling cues from the Pontiac Fire Chief and other cars of the American um, market in the late 40s so the, the, the actual chrome strips down the bonnet are really influenced by the, uh, the Pontiacs and the, the, the fog lamp the central fog lamp was really fairly popular in the uh, late 40s early 50s because um, if you look at some of the Rover, the Ro Rovers uh, had the Cyclops fog lamp as well, 
So there were a number of cars that had that central fog light and it works um, very well actually as an extra additional light when you're going down country lanes and you want a bit more illumination. Um, but it's, um, yes, it's a bit quirky I suppose and sort of adds to the charm of the car. How glad are you that you're not here in an open top car, well, no possible I, I, roof, I, no tonneau? Yes, I am pleased really because, I mean, when the car was conceived in 1948, they designed it as a drophead mm. and um, they, they produced a drophead for about two years and then they, they didn't really sell very well because they were expensive. They, they cost £1,080. Wow. Um, and if you equate that into modern money, that today is about 35500 Wow. So it's an awful lot of money. Mm. So they produced a, a hard top to um, try and appeal to people that wanted a hard top car rather than a soft top. Mm. And uh, that didn't sell either. So they, they sold a combined total of 7,981 mm. um, from 49 until, until 52. Um, there are a few cars around registered 53, but I think they rolled over from the 52 production and, and took a while to sell in the dealerships. Mm. But it is absolutely fascinating, and fair play to you for bringing it out. I think it, it does look fantastic. There's no way you could uh, you could create that uh, or recreate that. I think if you tried. So, VW uh, boys, eat your hearts out on that. And just for uh, just for the people looking at the pictures at home or listening at home, uh, obviously they can see what it looks like. But what it's, what's it like to to drive? Is it a bit of a piglet or, or quite compliant? It's surprisingly good to drive. It's a nice. It's quite although you're sitting down with your legs out quite l low. Um, you know, stretched out ahead of you, a bit like a racing car, really. Um, it's high up because it's a chassis car, um, and it it does give quite a clearance, as you can see, just standing here now. Um, when you're sat in there, you're quite high up, and it's very comfortable. The suspension is quite soft, the seating is very comfortable, and uh, it will happily bowl along at 75, no trouble at all. It's geared to do 90. Um, I've had it up to 75 and, and um, not really uh, wanted to go much faster. But it, it does, does handle surprisingly well on the straights. On the bends, it's not clever. You know, you've got to be a bit sensible on bends. Um, but overall, the brakes are good and the general handling's okay. For, for, you know, you've got to bear in mind, it was designed in, in the late 40s and um, cars were very different in those days. And my son's driven it, and he's used to a modern Astro, and he says, well, it doesn't like to go around corners. Well, you know, it doesn't compare to a modern car. And coming from, from someone who drives an Astro in terms of handling, I mean, that, 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 that is a little bit of an insight. I think perhaps a bit unkind to it. I think I, I would suffer, suffer the handling uh, to sort of uh, waft around it. I think yes. it, it, it's, yes. it's, it's, it's a great-looking thing. Yes, and it, it, it's, it's a low-revving engine. It's, um, it tops out about... Four and a half thousand RPM. It gives its maximum BHP of 88 brake horsepower at 2,600-ish, that sort of figure. So it's a low revving engine, and, and you can actually climb hills in top gear, even at low speed. And it, it's got lots of torque. Mm. That's quite respectable, actually, 88 yeah. horsepower, uh, yeah. considering yeah. 1951. Well, it's 2.66 2 liters. Um, they took the engine from the Austin 16 and the Austin A70 Hampshire, which was a 2.2. They bored it out to get as much CC as they could for the American market, and they went to 266. Mm. Um, and it was an effort to get a bigger engine. You know, they didn't really have the money or the time to build something bigger uh, that would work with this car. So, really, that was about the limit. Mm. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for talking to us. Really do appreciate it.
Derwin, this is um, one of the most extraordinary cars, I think, here. I've never seen one. Abarth was looking, or Abart was looking for a production-based car, series production car, and he um, put a, a sort of brief out to Vignali and Zagato to produce a car that he could build in volume based on the Fiat 600. So all the running gear is Fiat 600. The engine has a few Abarth modifications because that's primarily at the time what he was doing. He didn't like the design. He thought it was too controversial and too compromised as a road car. So he went with the Zagato design of which they built hundreds, not, not thousands, but and they built quite a lot. There are at least three of these were built in period, one of which was a gullwing version, which seems to have disappeared, which surprises me, because I thought that one would have stayed visible forever, but it, it seems to have gone. There's two that are actually known to exist now. Um, one may still be in Japan, uh, um, but it, it was up for sale a few years ago, so it could be anywhere in the world, I'm not actually certain. This one I've had for at least 35 years, and I'm surprised you haven't seen it during that time, in fact. But <laughs> Abarth didn't campaign the car himself, but it, they were sold privately. So I've got photographs of this racing at Mon this very car racing at Monza in 1957, wow. and it also did the Targa Florio in 57, um, but didn't finish unfortunately I think it only did about three laps a lot of vehicles didn't it probably blew up that <laughs> <laughs> they actually abandoned the Targa Florio right? <laughs> on the basis that it got so miserable driving it because it, it's it's very noisy inside it's a steel body no no sound deadening deadening and so it drones and you know, doing a thousand miles in that must be absolutely terrifying yeah I, I think it's, it's an incredible thing to look at. I've never seen anything quite like it. I mean, I guess from uh, sort of the uninitiated uh, sort of standpoint, I guess it, it, there's almost a, a slight bubble car vibe to it, just because it's so small, actually. I, I think it's the, it's the scale of it, yes. It makes it feel like a bubble car, but it it's sort of most definitely isn't, really, because um, <coughs> I think they... they said that in period this would do over 100 miles an hour which I doubt, I think that's Italian optimism quite honestly <laughs> on a 750 engine so it, it was clearly a, a sort of performance car There was of course a 750 class at Le Mans in that, that, that period yeah, so yeah, well, it D could have run at Le Mans Oh yeah it could have, yeah DB um, I mean we're constantly uh, winning that sort of uh, small capacity and you got more money for winning that than you did for winning overall, which was quite absurd. <laughs> so what's it? it's obviously got a, a fair amount of racing pedigree, but on a day like today, slippy, wet, horrible, what's, what's it like to actually just drive on the roads every day? I haven't driven it slippy wet, so um, I'm not sure how it would handle. It's surprisingly good. If you look at the, um, ab the Fiat 600s racing in period, I mean, they, they were dicing with minis which uh, when the mini came out I mean that was the definitive small car in terms of handling but the Fiat 600s were up there with them and often beating them in, in Europe so I, I think it probably handles quite well I mean I have um, sort of early Porsches I've got a couple of those speedsters <laughs> and um, those scare me in the wet I mean they are slippy dippy yeah 
and these feel that, that you feel more confident in one of these in the wet than you do in a in a Porsche 356. I would say, in my humble opinion. Stylistically, I'm I'm sort of reminded of the. Uh, Alfa Romeo sort of disco volante, the Batmobile era, which was slightly before this. So. Um, well, it, it sort of overlapped, and I, th- I think you're absolutely right. The Italians were getting very much into aerodynamics at that period, and um, I mean this is referred to in Italy as goccia, which is drop, um, as in aerodynamic drop. And Michelotti, who designed it, if you see his original sketches, which are well sort of publicised in books and things, it really is a teardrop. That's how he saw it, um, which then became slightly compromised by having to put holes in it for engines and things <laughs> and air to go in and out. <laughs> I do think, though, it, it is a car that looks much more modern than its time, to be honest. It is, it is a... A, a design in the way that, that only the Italians, I think, can yeah. design cars. I mean, I, I've always felt it's a Group C racer before its time. The, you look at the, the, the forward, um, the way in which Group C cars move the cabin and the driver further and further towards the front and, and left very little at the rear. It's got the, that sort of look to it for me. So, so in that sense, ahead of its time, yeah. This is a curved windscreen and a hugely curved rear window at a time when that, that technology was really innovative. Yeah. And the Americans were claiming that they, you know, uh, they started uh, all, all this curvature of the glass, which of course they didn't. But this is, this is really quite advanced for its years. Although, I mean, the rear screen is perspex, of yeah. course, which made it a little bit easier. I mean, it's like aircraft technology, I suppose, at that time, bubble tops. But um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's quite unusual. Turns heads. I think perhaps the most unique-looking vehicle here, if nothing else, the sort of uh, the winged beast. It, it does look, it does look great. Really does. Well, I mean, we often use the word unique, uh, and sometimes we overuse the word unique. This being one of two, and the other being God knows where, I think makes this unique, and uh, it's a suitable epithet. As close as you to unique as you can get without being unique. <laughs> Yeah, when you say you, you've never you've never seen one, I'd I'd never even heard of one. So I think that's it's a, every day's a school day. Thank you so much okay. for talking to us. Um, it's a superb car. Thank you very much indeed. Thank okay. You very much. Thank yep. you. So if the Arbatha sort of has an, an Alpine vibe to it, it's very close to the A110 that we saw over at Geneva, um, the new one and the old one, of course, uh, similar in its sort of styling. To a Sunbeam Alpine. We've gone to the other end of the spectrum here, but the reason why we're sort of looking at this one is because the interior is actually incredible. It's like a, a wicker seats, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's got some pretty special colouring in there as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's a red, uh, beautiful red leather with uh, with cream piping to the edges, and uh, yeah, as you say, wicker in the uh, in the centre. Not quite sure if that's for for comfort or uh, ventilation in the warmer months, but certainly very unusual. Yeah, definitely, and uh, the car is a beautiful shade of a light metallic blue. Um, seems to be popular today with um, sort of creamy, I'm guessing, Bakelite switches. It just, it just looks incredible, it really does. I mean, if you uh, have a chance to take a look at the photos of the event today, then, then definitely check this out. It's a, a great-looking car, but it's the interior that really is worth mentioning. Doug, this is uh, oh, my, one of the most rare cars here, probably one of the most rare cars in the country. It's come a long way to this event. Yes, we're, we're very privileged that um, uh, the Donington Collection, uh, Kevin Wheatcroft, 
and uh, Hall and Hall is preparers have brought this wonderful Thimble special Ferrari down to us. It's a four and a half litre unsupercharged V12 single seater Grand Prix car really, but it was owned by Tony Vandervel of Vandervel Products bearing manufacturers and he developed it, developed it and developed it uh, as one of the building blocks to what became the Van Wall team and in 1958 Van Wall became the first British constructor ever to win the Formula One Constructors Championship and this Thimwall special um, was driven by Mike Hawthorne himself in 1953 and he won races in it most notably at Goodwood and the following year in 54 his great friend Mon Ami mate Peter Collins um, won several more races in it and it was a very early car single seater car to run disc brakes and uh, Mike in this car was locked in combat with the V16 BRMs and the two of them had this great series of Formula Lieb race battles through 53 and that's the actual car that Mike drove in period and it's a car that was much beloved of British racing crowds during the mid 50s. You did mention to me earlier the sort of the value of this car not that it's for sale or ever will be I think but it was a big number. On the open market we would estimate that the car is between three and four million pounds worth the other way of looking at the Thimble Special is it is completely priceless. So, you know, we're really privileged to have it here. We were stood looking at the Bentley and we thought, OK, there's two legs on the side of the door and we'd just love to know what it actually means. Well, the cars raced um, at the Classic Le Mans meeting and uh, there were some guys helping out from Mission Motorsport, which, as you're probably aware, um, is a motorsport charity for soldiers with disabilities that have come back from the war and uh, the chap that was helping him out they didn't have a signaling procedure set up so they agreed that he was going to hang his prosthetic leg over the pit wall um, to give the signals to the driver and if the foot was pointing upwards it meant for the driver to stay out and uh, if the foot was pointing down it meant for the driver to come in. I absolutely love it. Yeah, we would never have guessed in a million years. We're looking, thinking, is that the way in? Is that how you have to you know, dismount the vehicle? Is there something special about it? That is absolutely superb. I mean, this is making an incredible noise. I mean, I appreciate you stopping and talking to us whilst you're, everyone's getting soaking wet here. But you know, fair play to you and fair play to you for bringing it out. I'm, I'm hugely envious and massively in awe of this thing. So thank you very much indeed. A pleasure. You're welcome. So we stood here on the corner of Downing Street in Farnham with loads of people lining the streets of both sides. Hopefully you've had a chance to check out some of the videos and photos that uh, we either broadcast or that uh, are up now on the site. I mean, you've got the Tudor-style buildings everywhere and, of course, Tudor buildings themselves everywhere, but it's not really what you'd expect to see. Just a load of cars sort of tearing their way around. Yeah, it's a very uh, quaint, uh, quirky, probably quite a, a sleepy little town. The, uh, the high street's got a few bits and pieces going on. We'll have to have a, a wander up later to number 10 and see what number 10 Downing Street as far as Farnham's concerned looks like but it's uh, yeah certainly a, a bit more noise and uh, an atmosphere today than most Sunday afternoons I would have thought. I mean, unquestionably at uh, 10 Downing Street in Farnham is probably going to be doing more today and have uh, a bit more interesting well yeah, to us more interesting stuff going on I'd say. We stood here at the side of the road just as they're about to release the next set of cars down um, and we've seen a bit of everything go around we've seen a blow Bentley we've seen 
old MGs, we've seen the Gondas, we've seen, well, a bit of everything. It's the, uh, the vintage police cars, and just as they go past you is when they choose to put the siren on, which is uh, always entertaining. Marshall's there just signalling a, uh, a few cars approaching and led out by the police cars again. Here we go. Here we are. A classic ding this time round. Here we go. And I thought some signalling going round, but no, they're just uh, trying to keep each other warm by cuddling. A couple of racing spec Lotus yes. coming round. Yes. It's Alan Stacey's Lotus going round. Second one, Sad 845 also following. Jaguars, Mark 1, Mark 2. What is nice, lots of the uh, the drivers dressed in uh, Imperia clothing, period leather helmets and a bit of racing tweed going on. Got to love a racing tweed. Lance here now. Here's the, uh, the Fiat from earlier. Oh yes, the, the little little bar. Sounds good actually, little 750. AC Ace, of course which the Cobra is based. Oh, I really hope you got to hear, hear that noise. They just, just sounded incredible. Jaguar coming around now, XK. And a Triumph as well. There's a, just a, a lot of different cars. Here's the Austin Healy. Hoping just hear the Ferrari come up behind. Some pops and bangs. Yes, give it some. Which cheap to follow. Right, there we go. Another Lotus. Unmistakable sound. Just beautiful, beautiful cars. It's an absolute spectacle to see. The pair of us, we're, we're absolutely freezing and indeed drenched straight through, but it has been an absolute experience today, hasn't it? The, the, the day has just absolutely flown by. Here comes Mike Hawthorne's own fan coming through. Tourist Trothbury carriage. <laughs> Love it. Great livery on there, but yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a fantastic day today, hasn't it? It has to be said the uh, the inside of the corner that we're stood on. Some are, are taking quite an aggressive racing line. It has to be said. You do have to watch your toes. They're uh, they're certainly aiming for the apex and hitting it. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. There's also a load of oil here. I've just noticed, which is coming out of something uh, as it comes down. Oh, here we go. You can probably just hear that they're they're actually. Uh, <laughs> I think it's going to go for it. Here we go. Yes. Yes! <laughs> D-type lighting it up there, that's the way to do it. Absolutely superb. It's a good looking car that ace, isn't it? Here comes the Ferrari.
just had to shut up for a minute there just because the noise is so good. Some of these cars coming around. We were uh, just really enjoying the D-type that just hung back there and just decided to floor it and swerve its way down the high street. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. One of Hawthorne's own cars. Great to see so many of these cars together. Really great. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.